Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Pod bless everybody. I'm your host of OPP, Corey Cambridge. And before we get started with this amazing episode, I want to tell you about my other show, Silent Giants. Silent Giants is a podcast that highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. Ever wondered who made the MTV logo? Did you know the person who wrote Earth, Wind & Fire's hit song September? Also wrote the theme song for the hit 90s TV show Friends? On Silent Giants, we learn more about these amazing people and dig deep to learn more about their most famous works. Be sure to check out Silent Giants on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Now, let me introduce you to our special guest of OPP. Merry Christmas, everybody. This is Brian Earle. I'm host of a podcast called Christmas Past, and this is OPP. Happy holidays, everybody, and welcome to another episode of OPP, America's number one podcast discovery platform that highlights your favorite podcasters and the dope shows they created. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. In honor of the holiday season, our special guest this episode is Brian Earle, host of the amazing podcast, Christmas Pass, a podcast that tells the stories behind your favorite holiday traditions and celebrates Christmas nostalgia. In this interview, we get to learn more about Brian. We chat about the history of Christmas and Santa Claus. We get his podcaster's picks. And of course, we chat about his dope show, Christmas Pass. So let's get into our exclusive interview with Brian Earl. My guy, Brian, how you doing, man? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Dude, first and foremost, happy holidays to you. And to you as well and to everyone listening too. Well, first of all, you're like the friend I want to have during the holidays. What's your typical holiday ritual? Well, uh, for me, I've been living in California for the last five years, but I grew up in Massachusetts. So it's really different celebrating the holidays out here. It's just a very, very different vibe. And so I'm looking forward to going home, which I'll be doing in just a couple of weeks to spend with my family. I'm one of five uh, children, have a, like a thousand nieces and nephews and aunts and uncles back in Massachusetts. So we'll all be getting together as we've done every year since I was a kid uh, to have a good old fashioned New England Christmas. Now, now, Brian, tell me a little bit more about uh, yourself and about your background. Uh, well, I am, like I said, from Massachusetts. I moved out here to California about five years ago to take a job at a tech company. So I'm in the Silicon Valley area. I'm a designer by day and a Christmas podcaster at night. I, I want to dive in a little more into your your love of Christmas, into the history mm-hmm. of Christmas. Uh, yeah. What what first attract what attracts you so much to this holiday? Well. I really didn't have a choice. I, I never stood a chance of not loving Christmas, and that is all thanks to my mom. I often think that maybe she was born a little too early because if she were 
uh, younger, like at this period in, in history, she would be one of those like Pinterest superstars, right? She was just the craftiest person that you'd ever meet. And back in those days, there wasn't Pinterest. There was Red Book and McCall's Magazine where, or Family Circle that would have all these little patterns and recipes and decorations and crafty things to make. And so our house was just floor to ceiling, wall to wall, all of these things that she would make, well, homemade advent calendars. There was this thing that you would do a long time ago where you take a, um, it was a, a plastic bleach bottle and cut it in half vertically and then cover it with felt and put googly eyes on it. And somehow, some way, this all ended up looking like Santa Claus's face. And she would hang that on the wall. Um, she made our own Christmas stockings out of felt and made them on her sewing machine. I still have that to this very day. It's I still hang it up at my place in California. And so Christmas was just really, really magical, largely thanks to her. And she got that from her dad, my grandfather, who was also really into the holidays. So. And it was also the kind of thing where there would just be music playing nonstop. She'd make a homemade gingerbread house. And like I said, again, I grew up on a cul-de-sac with a lot of kids my age. So Christmas was just a really, really big deal. And there was so many different ways to celebrate it and just a lot of people for me to celebrate it with that it, I really just uh, it, it was ingrained from a very early age. And it's just been one of my, not only my favorite holiday, but just my favorite thing like about life uh, for that long. And so for the listeners, uh, before we do a deep dive into your show, tell me a, a little bit uh, about the history of Christmas and how we've gotten to this modern, this modern version of what we celebrate today. Yeah, it's interesting the way that you framed that because Christmas is a holiday that is so steeped in tradition. But I think a lot of people are surprised to learn just how much of it is really, really new. Like the way that we think of Santa Claus, the common vision we have of Santa Claus really arrived around the 1930s. He's only about 90 years old, which means there are actual humans alive today who are older than the way that we see Santa Claus. Wow. Um, the idea of the average American home having a Christmas tree, that's only from about 1870. Uh, Christmas itself wasn't even a federal holiday until 1870. And it was really common in the early parts of the 20th century for schools to be open, for offices to be open on Christmas Day. So, so much of the way that we celebrate now is really, really new to the point that people from even four or five generations ago would look at the way that we celebrate it and they barely recognize it. So the question is, how did we get from there to here? And there's a lot of different ways that you could go about answering that, depending on the tradition that you're specifically interested in. Like, how did we end up with Christmas trees? Well, we know that pretty well, that it was something that uh, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert helped to popularize during the Victorian period. And a lot of the ways that we celebrate here in America are really heavily influenced by the Victorians. But Christmas itself, I think maybe one of the more interesting things that most people don't realize is that Christmas was not a major cultural holiday until very, very recently. For a long, long time, it was one of those minor things on the church calendar, like the Feast of Saint so-and-so, just one of those things that, yeah, it's there, we recognize it, but the idea of it being this big cultural celebration is actually very, very new. And a lot of the things that we've really solidified as being part of the quote unquote standard Christmas. We notice all of those things coming into being around the turn of the 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century. And so you have to say, okay, well, well, why, you know, what else was going on then that allowed that to happen? And it really had very much to do with the rise of the print media. So starting around 1880, the number of daily newspapers in America nearly doubled. We were producing more than half of all the newspapers in the world around that time. And you have to think, what does that mean for the average person? 
you know, every day we're exposed to so many advertisements. We're exposed to so many images put out by retailers or tastemakers or things like that. This was all new back then. The idea that on a daily basis, you would have a common way to understand something was new. So before Christmas became what it is now, it was really very hyper-local. You know, little uh, communities would celebrate it in their own way. And because there wasn't really mass transportation like we know it today, there was no internet or telephones, obviously, there was no print media, you really had no expectation that the way you celebrate Christmas would be anything at all like the people in the next state or the other side of the country. Once we had a way for there to be a common understanding of Christmas, um, based largely on these images being propagated by a mass media that was able to do that, then we started to have more of a standard Christmas. And of course, there are always regional differences, cultural differences, and of course, the little small differences that you have from family to family. But I can be reasonably certain that the Christmas I'm going to celebrate in California this year is pretty close to the ones that are going to be celebrated in New Hampshire this year. You know, the overlap on the Venn diagram is practically a perfect circle. It's just the little tiny regional differences that make for the things that make it unique. The way that we celebrate kind of Black Friday is this kind of made-up day of consumerism. Mm -hmm. Was yep. Christmas used kind of as a made-up consumerism day, per se? That's a really interesting question because it um, reminds me of a debate that I've been having online recently. Every year around oh the middle to end of October, you start to see the Christmas decorations on the store shelves. And everyone says, is it too early to start doing that? Is it too early to listen to Christmas music? Because after all, everybody knows that the Christmas season starts on Thanksgiving. This, too, is totally arbitrary. So the length of the Christmas season has always been very fluid and very arbitrary. So it was true for a long time that the period leading up to Christmas that we now celebrate as the Christmas season was the Advent season. It wasn't a time for celebration. It was a time for fasting and devotion and prayer and all of that. And the Christmas season itself started on Christmas Day, and it lasted for 12 days, you know, like the 12 days of Christmas. It would mm -hmm. end on so-called Twelfth Night. And then for a while, it sort of felt Christmas kind of fell into what people describe as disrepair. It really wasn't celebrated widely. And it was true for a long, long time that if you celebrated Christmas at all, you would do your decorating and celebrating the day before Christmas and maybe on Christmas Day itself. That was it. That was the length of the Christmas season, two, three days max. So why is it that we celebrate Christmas starting on Thanksgiving? And again, this goes back, it all started right around the beginning of the 20th century. And this was largely to do with large retailers like Macy's, Wanamaker's, and Woolworth's in New York City commandeering that burgeoning news media to say, we can extend this shopping season. Mm. So we can make Christmas last, not the three or four days before Christmas, it's a whole month. We are going to use our power to actually push that message. It's just, it's a, it, I think it's, a, it's an interesting point, but it's part of a larger point is the Christmas season is always going to be very, very fluid. And those of us who pay attention to these kinds of things can sort of pinpoint when we might be ready to make another change, right? So that idea of the Christmas season lasting from Thanksgiving to Christmas is totally made up and it's fairly new. And I'm really convinced that we're actually in the middle of watching it change again where you start to see Hallmark Channel putting on their movies starting in October. You're starting to see more and more of like online sales or just Christmas decorations on, on the shelves earlier and earlier. And it's sort of a larger effort to not extend necessarily the shopping season, but rather just like the entertainment season. And just back as it is now, way back in the 20th century, there were people who were uh, fighting against all of that. 
saying, oh my goodness, it's much too early to think about Christmas. There was something called the Society for the Prevention of Useless Gift Giving because they were really against this commerce stuff. They're like, all we're doing is buying a bunch of nonsense. You know, this is just commerce for its own sake, has nothing to do with Christmas. There were other groups that were saying, if you're going to do any of this Christmas shopping, do it early because the longer we extend the season, all of these poor shop workers are having to work late and that's keeping them away from their families and that's not fair to them. Those were the kinds of resistances that they, you had back in the early 20th century that eventually dissipated. And I'm really convinced that we're in an other period of that. People are fighting tooth and nail, or a lot of them are anyway, against Christmas starting sometime in October. But give it a generation or two. I'm convinced that within one or two generations, the idea of a Christmas season that starts in October or even earlier will be fully mainstream. Is this an American construct that is, is specifically being done here in the States, or is this kind of being adapted globally? Well, the thing is, as with America, so goes the world, especially when it comes to Christmas. Um, the Santa Claus image that we have is really comes from a lot, a lot of different places, but America kind of put the finishing touches on it. And now you see that image of Santa Claus in China, Singapore, like all over the world. Right. So I think just because of Western culture, really having a way of, of reaching uh, to all corners of the world. The way that we celebrate is the one that's influencing the rest of the world, just as it was true 100 years ago that the, the way that the Victorians were celebrating was influencing the rest of the world. Tell me how the uh, characters of Christmas that we associate with Christmas have evolved over time. Yeah, well, Santa Claus I mean, was a real person, St. Nicholas, a real guy from the fourth century uh, who was a bishop. And then after his death, he was a really popular saint in the Christian religion. He was kind of this all-purpose patron saint. And this is sort of where we start to see some of the, the connection between then and now where he's a magical figure. Because there are legends of him raising the dead, of him protecting seafarers. There's one actual gruesome story about these travelers who went to an inn and the innkeeper killed and dismembered them and put them in a tub. And St. Nicholas happened to be staying at that inn and found out about it, resurrected the bodies and had them remembered and brought back to life. And then the innkeeper repented. So a lot of this stuff, you know, obviously didn't make it into today's uh, telling of, of St. Nicholas, but that was the earliest uh, glimmers of him being this kind of, you know, magical miracle worker. Then for a while after his death, there was St. Nicholas Day, which started, which was on December 6th, which, you know, really the idea of St. Nicholas and Christmas, that wouldn't happen for a lot late, later. He was just this popular patron saint with all kinds of legends. Then I think it was, and I'm blanking on the dates here, but within the last couple hundred years that St. Nicholas Day and the Christmas celebration overlapped. I think we know that the first instances of giving gifts in the name of St. Nicholas was from the 12th century, these nuns who would go around on St. Nicholas Eve giving gifts to poor children. And then when you fast forward maybe to around 18th or 19th century, you have the work of Washington Irving, who started writing about Santa riding uh, a sleigh and uh, having a horse pull him. And that was really the Dutch influence of the Sinterklaas legend, which was heavily influenced by Odin. So Odin would fly across the night sky, riding his horse sleep in air. Children would leave hay out in their shoes for the, the horse and uh, things like that, and gifts out for Odin. Very similar to how we leave out cookies for St. Nicholas and the like. So that brings us up to, I guess, about the late 19th century. And then probably one of the most influential works on all of this was A Visit from St. Nicholas by Clement Clark Moore, 
And there's a whole story there. There's some dispute whether it was he or someone else who wrote the poem. Uh, nonetheless, that poem actually gave us a lot of the things that we think about when we think about Santa Claus, that, you know, he comes at night, he slides down the chimney, he leaves all these gifts, etc. This is where we get our modern depiction of St. Nicholas and Santa Claus? Yeah, it's the beginning of it. So what happened then is that an illustrator named Thomas Nast, who would do illustrations for Harper's Magazine, kind of carried the ball from there. He would start to draw Santa Claus as this kind of like scruffy little elf figure, kind of look like a leprechaun. His suit starts to look a little bit more like the Santa suit we know today. Sometimes it kind of looks like pajamas or long johns, but it's sort of getting there. The thing about all of those depictions, Washington Irving, Thomas Nast, and Clement Clark Moore, is that Santa Claus is not human. That's the important thing. Why can he slip down the chimney? If you read the poem, he's riding a miniature sleigh with eight tiny reindeer, and he can slip down the chimney because he's an elf, because he's like three feet tall. And if you look at one of the earliest illustrated uh, books of A Visit from St. Nicholas, published by Houghton Mifflin, that's what you see. And the same thing with Thomas Nast. That where he was drawing, he draws Santa Claus with pointy ears. He'd be small and squat. So how do we get from there to here? And this is goes back to what I was saying. Our current image of Santa Claus is just like a guy, just like a six foot grandfather who's fully human. That started to come around the 1930s, largely from artists like Norman Rockwell in the Saturday Evening Post, but most famously a graphic artist named Haddon Sunblom. He's the same guy who drew, I think, Aunt Jemima, the famous Aunt Jemima. Yeah. Um, and a bunch of other, like, you know, he did like brand uh, paintings. So Coca-Cola hired him to draw Santa Claus back in 1934, if I'm not mistaken. And again, because of the sheer marketing power and the sheer reach that Coca-Cola had back then, they could really propagate this single image of Santa Claus, the way he looks, the way he stands, the way he dresses. Uh, you know, there's even a myth that Santa Claus or that Coca-Cola invented Santa Claus, which is clearly not true. But I think there's a glimmer of truth in it. I think it's fair to say that they put the finishing touches that the last iteration of Santa, there hasn't been another iteration of Santa that sees him differently than that one that we all sort of agreed to. The, the version of Santa that we all have come to know and love that that's came about in about the 1930s. Now, Santa's been a little bit controversial. I had no idea until recently, until my adulthood, that I guess like uh, the, the Dutch have the, the Santa Claus and that Santa Claus had slaves. Uh, yes. That there's, there's this depiction. How did this kind of come about and when did this, why are we not really aware of the history of this part of Santa Claus? Well, I think more and more people are becoming aware of it, but that is... Something again, the, there were a lot of legends about St. Nicholas and then Sinterklaas that sort of stayed uh, in the past. And a lot of the, the, the Santa Claus that we all know today is really an American Santa Claus. So the Sinterklaas legend from the Dutch, we sort of borrowed some pieces of it. Uh, they had a totally different notion. Like he didn't live in the um, in the North Pole. He lived in Spain. That was actually the Dutch legend. He lives in Spain and then he comes by boat to visit every year. But it was also true that Santa Claus... The, the legend of Santa Claus, not St. Nicholas, belongs to a much larger tradition of these magical gift givers. And as Christianity rolled through Europe, uh, so did Christmas. And as it rolled through Europe, it's almost like a snowball, where if you roll a snowball, not only does it grow, but it like picks up pieces of anything in its path. 
And so you start to see some of this European folklore rolled into the way that Santa Claus behaves. You know, it's almost like one of those Brothers Grimm characters where some children meet him in the woods. And if you're good, he'll reward you. But if he's if you're bad, he'll punish you like the, like Hansel and Gretel. And so Santa Claus or the, the older version of Santa Claus would walk around with uh, these helpers like like Belsnickel or, or other ones like that who would do the job of punishing you if you were bad and Santa Claus would give you things if you were good. Uh, but yes, it was also true that he had, um, you know, what now it's been sort of um, you know, history has whitewashed it to say that these were his helpers. But yes, they were his slaves. Uh, someone named Zwart Pete or Black Peter, who was represented to look like a Moor. You know, he'd wear a turban and a, a, a gold earring. Uh, and th these images are all readily available online. Yes, that was absolutely part of the legend of Santa Claus. Uh, just thankfully, it never made it here. But you can still, in, in certain parts of the world, you can still go and participate in a Black Peter celebration. There's a street festival somewhere in the world every year where people, and unfortunately, it's true that um, uh, people of, of all races will go and darken their skin as a way of helping, of celebrating this, this thing. Um, it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And it, it remains controversial to this day. Uh, you know what, Brian? We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, bring it into your amazing podcast, Christmas Past. Thanks. And Brian, we are back, my man. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let's go a little bit further back and tell me about how you discovered the medium of podcasting. You know, I honestly don't remember my first experience listening to a podcast, and that's probably because... If I had to guess, one of the first podcasts I ever listened to was really just the podcast version of my favorite NPR shows. It was probably Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which arguably isn't a proper podcast, right? It's not like like the thing that we're doing right now. But that was was and is one of my favorite podcasts. And I think way, way back then, and I don't know, we're talking maybe 2013, 2014, I was really into this podcast called Skeptoid by Brian Dunning. It's this critical thinking podcast where I would say there's maybe some shades of that in Christmas past of taking something that you assume is one way and sort of peeling back the layers and saying, well, actually, no, there are all these little hidden connections or little threads that you probably haven't considered. And so, and, and it's short like mine is too. So, um, Maybe not consciously, but certainly probably unconsciously that's had an influence on me. Did you know instantly from hearing these early podcasts that you were a fan of that you would want to be a host or start your own podcast no. yourself? Absolutely not. No, it was the other way around for me. This was, I love Christmas so much. I put up my Christmas tree on Halloween and I take it down on Valentine's Day. And the only reason I don't keep it up all year round is because my wife won't let me. So <laughs> I think about Christmas a lot. Uh, I can't wait for Christmas every year. It's really the thing that it just brings me the most joy in life. Um, and so for a long time, I realized that I needed a creative outlet. I was going to do something Christmassy that I could work on all year round and just sort of, you know, keep me busy and stimulated creatively. And I didn't know what it was going to be. For a while, I was like, maybe I want to write a novel or a screenplay. Maybe I want to like create a product or start a business. 
Uh, and I actually went back and forth on a bunch of different ideas. And then it really, it just came to me that podcasting would be maybe the best way to satisfy all of the different creative uh creative urges that I had when it came to Christmas. Because what I love about podcasting is that it allows you to be creative in a number of different ways. My show is scripted, so I have to do a lot of writing, have to do a lot of reading, uh, work on the way that I actually tell the stories. There is a really strong storytelling component to the way that I relate all this information. And then of course, all the design with the website and the social media and all of that, it really just touches on everything. So it's been enormously satisfying. But no, it wasn't that I wanted to start a podcast and I was in need of a topic. It was I wanted to do something Christmassy, and I was in need of an outlet for that. Uh, so, for folks who are, are listening to the podcast, uh, give me the elevator pitch for Christmas Past. Well, Christmas Past is a podcast that tells the stories behind your favorite Christmas traditions, and it does it in a way where the emphasis is really on storytelling. If you've listened to a couple episodes, you realize there's kind of a size and shape to all of them. They kind of flow in a similar way where I'm really trying to grab your interest and then take you on a little journey where at the end of it, you kind of feel the sense of completion and finality. And then, of course, at the end of most of my standard episodes, I share a Christmas memory from one of my listeners. Uh, t tell me the origin story uh, of how you got the podcast started. Well, this was, I think, back in 2015. I was about to start it, and then we moved out to California, so it had to go. Um, it had to go on hold for a little while, and then it was. I think I started this in April of 2016 with the assumption that it would come out starting in December. So that's another important piece is that the episodes, at least for the last three years, have come out between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I started branching out now. So I started this year in September, and I think next year it might go even further than that. But the way it, it all started is I have a, like a bunch of books about Christmas, and almost at random I said, okay, what are the, like, the big topics that I know I need to cover? And Part of me wants to space it out a little bit because it's been five, four years now and I still haven't covered Christmas trees, like a lot of obvious stuff like wreaths, Christmas trees, etc. And I made a decision early on that this is all about telling the stories behind your favorite Christmas traditions, not like an A to Z about every Christmas tradition ever or something like Christmas around the world or something like that. It's the stuff that you do every day or every day during the Christmas season and trying to find things that have an interesting backstory. And if they don't, then they're really not fair game. Like, for example, the Christmas stocking, that tradition, there's just not a lot of story there. Like, there's a couple of little bullet points that I could do, but there's not enough to make that an interesting story. Um, so that's, I'm really looking for, you know, moments of surprise and delight and little connections that are things that have influenced the way that you celebrate that you probably wouldn't assume are true. One example of that, I did an episode this season on the standard Christmas dinner. So if you're like most people, you're going to have a turkey and some potatoes and all of that. Uh, but why? Like, why that? Why have we all agreed that you eat a turkey on Christmas? Because it wasn't always true. For a long time, it was true that if you were rich, you ate roast beef. And if you were poor, you had a goose. But a couple things happened right around the Victorian period. Number one, infant mortality rates dropped due to uh, advances in medicine, which meant that families were getting larger. Number two, there are all kinds of uh, advances in transportation, like the railways. That opened up a lot of stuff that we now take for granted at Christmas. The idea of being able to travel long distances for Christmas well, was all new back then. But it was also now possible to transport food from long distances from farms to marketplaces. And then also there was a rising middle class that had more money. So the one of the common threads if you as you listen to the show is that a lot of traditions came to be almost because like they had to 
at that moment. All of these other factors were coming to be right around the same time. Um, so, you know, you have a rising middle class, you have advances in ways of like moving things around and you have just larger families. And so then you need a bigger bird to free, feed all of them. And that's why the turkey became the standard uh, meal. And now like we, we continue to practice a lot of tr Christmas traditions, even though it doesn't make sense to anymore. Right. Like in a lot of ways, the Christmas dinner is a harvest meal you know, where we have a global food supply, we can have whatever you want all year round. Right. The turkey was made to feed large families. Uh, you know, you might be around a dinner table where there's like three or four other people, but you're still going to serve a turkey. So it's really interesting to just understand where these things come from and sort of how they came to be. What have you learned about Christmas and how has this podcast strengthened your love for, strengthened your love for Christmas? I think on the one hand, I was a little bit nervous that getting so deeply into Christmas like this, because you'd have to do a lot of research and a lot of reading and talking to people, that that was going to kind of, I, I was going to burn out. Um, and so the first year I was actually pretty tentative about all of this. And then what I realized is that it adds an extra layer to my appreciation. It's true, after you reach a certain age, you kind of do the same things every year and maybe some of the luster wears off or it's like, wait, why do we do this again? Or, you know, every year you hear, in a visit from St. Nicholas, visions of sugar plums dancing in your head. And it's like, wait, what is a sugar plum? Like, why do we talk about this every year? And so by actually coming, coming up with those answers and being able to share them with other people and importantly, form a community around it, uh, because the podcast is really just a springboard to this larger Christmas community that I've been working on creating. Uh, it's just one component of it. And, you know, I, I get all the interaction with the people who listen and talking about their own family's traditions and how what I say relates to some of the things that they're looking forward to this year. It actually has added another huge layer of appreciation to the season that just wouldn't have been there otherwise. Um, when listeners get done listening to our interview and, and they go to Christmas Pass, what do you want them to walk away with learning uh, about Christmas, about this special holiday after listening to your show? I think it's really, a lot of us come into Christmas with very, very strong beliefs. Again, like like we were talking about before, how people assume, well, everybody knows that the Christmas season lasts from Thanksgiving to Christmas. Well, that's not true. That's just because someone made that up. Like, like seriously, like one or two people just decided that that's gonna, that was going to be our Christmas season. So having that context maybe makes you think a little bit more about some of the knee-jerk reactions you have. There's something that sort of happens in certain corners of the internet or certain corners of television around this time where people want to claim there's, there's a war on Christmas. Some people are trying to take away Christmas. It's like, once you look into that, like read a book on that topic, you'll come away with a very, very different understanding of all of that. So what I hope people come away with is just an extra sense of understanding that maybe helps them to understand themselves a little better, help them understand the holiday that they love a little bit better, and maybe just think about things a little bit differently. Uh, before we get into our podcasters picks, Brian, mm -hmm. from, from all of your, your research and uh, your studies of Christmas and your love for Christmas, what does Christmas mean to you now? It's going to sound like a very, very cheesy answer, but Christmas is, it's a frame of mind. It's a feeling. Uh, I think a lot of people assume, oh, since you have a Christmas podcast and you're so into Christmas, your house must be bonkers. You must put up all these lights. You must be one of those guys with a bunch of inflatables on your front yard. Absolutely not. Like I am just not that guy at all. Christmas for me is just strictly this internal feeling. And I think it, it, it's sort of part of a larger 
point about what Christmas is or even just what the idea of festivity is. It's this uniquely human thing that we do where we change our environment, we change our behavior, we change things about our own appearances to mark certain occasions. You know, like you don't normally put balloons up or eat cake, but you would do that because it's your birthday. Or, you know, same thing for like Easter or Thanksgiving or Halloween. But when it comes to Christmas, we do that in the most spectacular fashion, where the entire world looks and feels different. And so many of our behaviors, how we treat other people and we become more charitable and, you know, we dress differently when we go to parties and the world sounds different because of the music we're listening to or the TV shows that are on. It's almost like you're walking around in this perpetual state of being just charmed and enchanted. It's like a spell has been cast over the world. And honestly, the only other feeling I know of that comes anywhere near that feeling is the feeling of falling in love. That's what Christmas is like to me. It's just this, your heart just feels so full and warm that it's almost going to, to burst. And that's really what Christmas means to me. I could give you some pat generic answer. Well, it's all about family. It's all about charity. It's, it's all of those things. But importantly, it's the feeling that all of those things give you. Wow. Man, I love Christmas a whole lot more now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Brian, we have come to a part of the show called our Podcasters Picks. And this is mm -hmm. when I ask the guests of today's show to give me their top three favorite podcasts that they enjoy that we should be listening to. So, Brian, take it away. All right. Number one is the show about science. This is hosted by a kid who started out, I think, when he was like seven. He must be nine now. His name is Nate. And he interviews scientists. And it is just so pure. It's this cute little kid. He's been on Ellen. Like, his show's kind of grown. It's gotten pretty big. I think Breakmaster Cylinder even provides his, his music now because he's gotten to that level. But it is just the cutest and purest thing. And Aside from any of that, like you actually learn plenty of stuff about science. He'll have on some pretty big names and actually get sort of like the the TEDx version or the TED Ed version of a certain scientific topic. But it's just it's adorable. It's short. It's cute. It's pure. And that's the kind of stuff that I love about podcasting that just like anybody who has something to say can get into the game. It's an open medium. And if you have something to say and a microphone, then welcome to the club. Let's see what you got. So the show about science. I love it. Number two is The Memory Palace from Nate DeMeo, which is just these gorgeous, gorgeous little 10-minute stories from history. And it's the way that he tells them, where he's very obviously accustomed to writing for the ear. And I remember when I was in maybe junior high on television, on PBS, they had that Carl Sagan series, um, uh, Cosmos. And he has this e essay at the end of one of them called Pale Blue Dot. And the way that it's this essay about just our place in the universe, and it's just so rhythmic and lyrical, the way that it flows, it almost just feels like a piece of music. And Nate DeMeo's podcast is like that. He tells these stories that almost feel like like songs in a way, just because of the the way that the language and the imagery and everything just flows. It, it's just feel it's wonderful. And of course, you discover all these stories uh, and personalities from history that you might not have otherwise. So I highly recommend that one. And then the third, I think the common pattern here is these are all short uh, podcasts. Most episodes are like 10 or 15 minutes long. Uh, the Way I Heard It by Mike Rowe. Do you know what show that's what was inspired by? No. Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story. And if anyone has not heard Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story, Paul Harvey passed away, long time veteran broadcaster. Um, but you can find all of the past episodes of that on archive.org or YouTube, elsewhere on the internet. Um, 
And Mike Rose has admitted this. He actually talked to the Paul Harvey estate when his podcast came out to make sure that it was all okay. But that idea of telling the story where you don't know who you're talking about, you don't know who the host is talking about until the very end. So you're telling this whole story and there's like a little bit of, of subterfuge and artifice where you're sort of hiding some of the clues or presenting them in a way that's making you think one thing. And then at the end, he reveals who he's talking about and then it all clicks in your head and it just feels very, very satisfying. Um, so yeah, that is absolutely one of my favorite podcasts. And again, I, I'm sort of giving you a twofer. So if you like Mike Rose the way I heard it, also just look somewhere online for Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story. Wow. And Brian, before we get out of here, my man, why do you podcast? I think, again, it's because it satisfies so many different ways of being creative, where I get to write, I get to edit, I get to find music. When I'm putting together an episode, it's almost like I'm composing a little bit. I don't want it to sound more grandiose than it is, but it really is true that the way that I will, when I end a point, that's right when the music comes in, it's like punctuation. Uh, the music kind of like comes and goes. It's sort of part of the story, the way that I choose which clips to put in and when. It's not really necessarily about telling the story behind a Christmas tradition, but rather just creating this experience where for 10 minutes you can just sort of sit down and close your eyes and just sort of learn and feel and come out just feeling like you have a little bit more appreciation for something that you've taken for granted maybe your whole life uh, and that that just is going to help make for a more magical Christmas season for you. Well, Brian Earl, man, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm not going to lie, man. You really put me in, in such good Christmas spirits of listening to your show. And everyone, please go check out Christmas Pass. It, it will seriously, and you, you described it in a very good way of just kind of warming your heart. And your podcast really warms your heart and really gets you in a positive spirit about the holiday, man. So thank you so much. And Pa, bless you for what you do. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on. And Merry Christmas again. Merry Christmas, brother. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of OPP. And to our special guest, Brian Earle. You can find Christmas Pass on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. This episode was mixed by Joshua Coleman. The music for this podcast was produced by Richie Quake. And if you're feeling in the Christmas spirit, please be sure to leave us a five-star rating in the Apple app. And let me know your favorite podcast of this year in the description. Before we end this episode, I want to say Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all of our listeners around the world. This year has been a year of tremendous growth for the show, and we cannot be where we are without your love and listenership. Happy holidays to the amazing podcasters who I've been fortunate to have as guests on OPP. Thank you for sharing your stories and supporting our mission. I wish you all much more success and happiness in the new year. I also want to take a little time to thank the OPP pod squad who make this show possible. Much love to my pod brothers, Joshua Coleman and Bradley Naiman, for being such amazing sound engineers and making the show sound absolutely excellent. Thank you to my pod sister and social media editor, Sadie May, for all of your amazing work you do on our socials. Words can express how grateful I am for all of your friendship and support. So for the last time, although it's been said many times and many ways, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year from everyone here at OPP. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. God bless. Till next time.
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 